0: Thank you for joining us for the Sacrament Church Audio Sermon Podcast this week. I'd like to begin the recording acknowledging some audio issues that we experienced that resulted in a slight echo. The issue also impacted the scripture reading for the week, so I'll give you those for your reference. The Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 18, through chapter 9, verse 1. The Epistle reading comes from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Gospel reading comes from Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, As we jump into our sermon today, one, one of the common themes that we see throughout the Scripture is that human beings are called to care for the world, that we're stewards of the world that we are caretakers, we are cultivators, we're gardeners. That's who God has called us to be.
1: This is a really
0: powerful thing. And I think in some ways we get a little bit confused by this. One of the reasons why is because one of our earlier English translations translated Genesis 1.26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, etc. It's a fine translation to say let them have dominion, but it's not everything. So when you leave your children with a babysitter, part of what you tell your children is obey the babysitter. But the whole relationship between the person being babysat and the babysitter is not obedience. That's not the whole thing. There's more to it. It's okay, we hope that you flourish and you have fun and that you're cared for well and all of these kind of things. We've kind of turned our calling as stewards, as cultivators of the world, and we turn it into a sense of domination over the world. And so, so much of Christianity has been about, well, yes, we're called to dominate the world, but we've we've got it backwards. Over time, we see that human beings throughout our story failed to steward. We failed in our responsibility to care for the world. We went our own way To live outside of our identity as stewards is to reject our dependence on God, and that's to sin. That's really what the Bible calls sin.
1: But the good news is that
0: God never gives up on his people. And we see this over and over again. That we see that God calls, as human beings go astray, God calls a specific family to be the stewards of a particular land and to care for a particular land as a reflection of how it's supposed to be for the whole world. God calls people to be stewards, to be caretakers. This people, Israel, and this land would become a microcosm, a signpost of what God would ultimately do for the whole world, bring it back under his lordship and his healing and his restoration. So for the Christians, stewardship stands behind everything that we do. How are we stewarding? How are we caring for that which God has put in front of us? For our world, for our neighborhoods, for our businesses, for our families, how are we being stewards? And when we turn away from God and we turn to other things, what happens is idolatry or turning to these other kind of things, these counterfeits, idolatry naturally shifts us from cultivation to domination. So we shift from people who are giving and generous and caring and cultivators to people who want to kind of just squeeze everything out of the world for ourselves. So neighborhoods become only what's good for me. I want the neighborhood to be good for me. Businesses are about squeezing every last drop of profit rather than providing a helpful service. The earth is used rather than tended. We see our own desires and fulfillments in our spouse and children. We want to get from them what we desire and what we want rather than seeking their highest good. Jeremiah in our passage today, and we've had Jeremiah's readings the past few weeks, but Jeremiah is often called the crying prophet because he grieves with the people. Some of the other prophets are a little bit more matter of fact. But Jeremiah speaks strong words, and then he grieves over the strong words. He wrestles with Israel. Jeremiah feels Judah's pain. And throughout the book, you notice that. He jumps back and forth between, hey, these are your consequences, in a harsh way to, oh, these are your consequences. He grieves over and over again. And he's grieved for a couple of different reasons. He's, of course, grieved for what Judah is going through and what they're facing,
1: the fact that they've
0: gone astray. But he's also grieved that they're not listening to him. They're not feeding his words. They're not responding. Jeremiah knew that the Babylonian exile and the fall of Jerusalem were coming. And so he's longing and he's grieving with them. So the prophet asks specifically, is God even there in Zion? This is because his image bearers, his stewards, have turned elsewhere. And as if giving the response of God, it says, why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? In other words, they've looked to other things to define them, other images rather than who God has created them to be.
1: And then he uses this
0: harvest language, and he talks about, is the harvest going to be plentiful this year? And he says, no, like the harvest has come and gone, and now we look and there's there's not enough. There's not what we need. The prophet asks, is there any healing balm in Gilead? You may have heard this before if you've been around the church very long. Basically, is there even a physician there? Is there any medicine? The old African-American spiritual expresses this as a statement of fact. There is a balm in Gilead. We as Christians can say that because Jesus is the balm. He is the healing one. But here it's posed as a question because the reality is unknown. Is there any healing available for these people who've rejected their stewardship, for these people who are broken? Not even the medicinal herbs from the land of Gilead could do anything for Judah in their current state.
1: So the result for the grieving prophet is his eyes
0: are a fountain of tears. It says he weeps day and night. When our lives are turned from worship of the one true God toward other things, we lose sight of who we are and who we're called to be. So as broken people, because of sin, we have a stewardship problem. Our world is not stewarded well. And we have an identity problem. We forget who we are. So over time, we see that Jeremiah's grief is God's grief. We see that Jeremiah and God grieve together. But then over time, we also see it becomes the people's grief as they grieve for themselves and they wonder, is God really with us? Is God's presence in our midst? So we see this throughout the Old Testament. God's people are grieving and longing. Something's not right. We're not who we're supposed to be. We have an identity problem. We have a stewardship problem. And then ultimately, we see that into the New Testament, that there's a group of people who are longing. We see this in... um, In some of the prophets, we see this in Zechariah and Elizabeth, a faithful people who are longing and going, when are things going to be put right? We see this in Mary. They're longing. They know that things have gone astray, and so they wait. We know we're not the stewards. We're called to be. God do something. And of course, God does. In our New Testament reading, Paul tells Timothy that before he does anything else, he and the people of God are to pray. Because we're a dependent people, because we know it's not up to us, because we know we can't bring about our own redemption, we need to pray. Prayer is not an add-on to the Christian life. It's a central focus. And notice who Paul says Timothy to pray for. He's not to pray for himself or his family, though that's wonderful, like all of that is good. But he specifically says, pray for all people, so everybody, and then specifically for, Those in stewarding positions. Those who hold the world together by their leadership or their rule or their authority. And this has always been a thing. Mainstream Christianity has always affirmed we're to pray for our leaders. We pray that they and that all of us might turn to God for salvation and seek to be stewards who lead in the loving way in which he calls us. But notice we don't just pray for rulers. It says we pray for everyone. So it's a really interesting phrasing here, because Paul says, uh, lift prayers and intercessions, pray for everyone, and pray for rulers. <laughs> so somehow, rulers have an important role in the world in such that they're to be called out here, but we all have a stewarding role. It's a reminder of that reality. We're all called to steward. We're all called to lead in some way. So pray for everyone in your midst that we might live congruently with God's care in the world.
1: Now, in our world today, it seems like we've gotten in the habit of putting prayer
0: and and action against each other, to where you kind of have to choose one or the other. You either pray or you're supposed to act towards change, but that's never been the historic Christian position. Historically, the church has always seen the two hand in hand. In fact, if you pray, but you never live in action for things to change in the world, there's always a question, are you really praying? (laughs) But if you act and you don't pray, are your actions faithful? How do you know they'll be faithful? Esau Macaulay points out that earlier in the first letter to Timothy, or in this same letter, Paul lists out a bunch of ungodly things. And one of the things he mentions is the Greek word for slave traders. So It says slave trading is wrong. Trading slaves is identified as being contrary to sound doctrine. But it's legal in the Roman world.
1: But he says, no, it's wrong. It's ungodly.
0: So it's something that's supposed to be worked against. So in case anybody says, hey, don't ever criticize your leaders. (laughs) Don't ever go towards action. You need to be praying for them instead. Timothy has them both together. Pray for your leaders and call out the things that are against sound doctrine. So Macaulay says, prayer for leaders and criticism of their practices are not mutually exclusive ideas. Both have biblical warrant in the same letter. So, we're to act for justice. We're to act for goodness. But heavens, the answer is not to stop praying. Got to pray. Prayers are not the beginning and end of everything, but they certainly should be at the beginning and at the end of everything. When we're faced with big things in our world, I hope we turn to prayer first. Because if I don't turn to prayer, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't know how to respond. And it is prayer that leads me to right living and to right action in the world, the proper perspective. Because why? Because I know I'm not the hope of the world. God is the hope of the world. Notice what Paul tells Timothy to pray for. So when they pray for leaders, the prayer is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We pray so that we cannot be harassed and we can go about doing the good work of communities of faith. That's why we're to pray for our leaders. Timothy doesn't tell them to pray that Christians will gain the upper hand in world affairs because that was unheard of in the first century, the fact that they would somehow be in charge. He doesn't even ask or pray for favor with the emperor. That, that was strange. He's to pray that Christians are able to live out godliness and holiness in peaceful and quiet ways.
1: If you think about it, it's really consistent with Jesus.
0: Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a seed, more particularly a very small mustard seed, like hidden treasure, like a pearl. These are things that are small, but they have great significance. Well, this is the life of godliness, this is the life of holiness, something small that has import. It has significance in the world. In fact, the idea of holiness, that word, that word gets, you know, we use that a lot in church, and it feels like this big, intimidating kind of word. Holiness just kind of means different. The technical word is set apart or kind of different. So today, when uh, we were singing about the holiness of God, it's one way of just kind of singing, God, you're different. <laughs> you're different than anything else we could turn to in the world. There's something about your essence and your character that is completely above and completely different than anything else. It's almost a way of saying, God, I've searched the whole world. I've looked at everything else in the world, and there's nothing like you. There's nothing out there that's like you. So Christians, when we're called to live out that holiness, it's to live different, to be set apart. In a selfish world where the goal is to get ahead or to be liked or to attain power and wealth, The Christian holy life will always be odd. It will always be strange. And then Paul says, why are we to pray for our leaders? Because there's one God. That seems random. Okay, pray for our leaders, and then here's a doctrinal point. There's one God. But no, no ruler can claim they are the human embodiment of the divine. Because they're not God. So this is so cool. We pray for our leaders, not to our leaders. If they were the end all, we would pray to our leaders. Great leader, will you do everything for us and fix it for us? We pray for them because there's a higher authority to them. Praying for your leaders is subversive. (laughs) It's saying they're not the end of things. God is the end of things.
1: The emphasis on Christ as the
0: singular Lord prevents you from worshiping earthly rulers and encourages you to pray to God on their behalf. We pray for our leaders knowing, and Paul says that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. He's the one person who can go between God and man. So we pray for our leaders knowing that they don't have the the final say, Jesus has the final say, and that our call to steward and to bless because of Jesus goes beyond. So here's another thing. If Jesus is the final, if he's the only mediator between God and man, then that means that tribal and jurisdictional gods and leaders they don't have the final say over their people. He's the God of everybody. If all the gods of the Gentiles are fake and all the other rulers don't have final authority, our one true God has invited everybody to know him, regardless of their ethnicity or background or who they are. So this is a call out to everyone. Okay,
1: I want to look, as we look at this idea of
0: stewardship, I want to look at our gospel reading today, which is really debated. I echo what Sam said earlier that our readings are a bummer, and they are a bummer on multiple levels. This gospel reading is so odd to us in the 21st century. We are supposed to wrestle with scriptures. That's where I've rested today. <laughs> is that This week, I've kind of gone, okay, this is really hard, but God, it's your word, and I'm supposed to wrestle with it. It's supposed to be challenging to me. In fact, I read about 10 commentaries this week on this passage. I think I got 10 different perspectives on this parable because it's just so odd. In fact, it's often called the hardest parable. And this Sunday is the hardest Sunday. It begins with a rich man and a manager. This is the story Jesus tells. So the rich man hears that his manager is squandering his estate. So he's doing something weird with the books. It's in disrepair. It's not working rightly So the manager says, let me see your accounts. Let me see your books and see what you're doing here. Well, the manager kind of freaks out.
1: What do I do? He's going to fire
0: me. I'm not going to be his steward anymore. And then there's even some panic language there. I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't have a job as a digger. I'm too ashamed to beg. So what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to go? So he hatches a plan. His plan is this. He's going to start forgiving the debt that's owed to the master. So the debt that he's responsible for but belongs to the master, he's going to start forgiving it because his rationale is when the master fires him, he'll then have a bunch of friends who will welcome him into their house. Okay, So one by one, he begins to ask the debtors how much they owe, and then he knocks it down. The one who owes 900 gallons of olive oil, been there, right? Oh, um, Now only owes 550, right? The one who owes 1,000 bushes of wheat, now only owes 800. Scholars tell us that what the manager is likely doing is he's taking away the interest. So he's cutting down the interest and going down to the principal. Um, at this time, in Jewish world, charging interest was illegal. They couldn't do it. But people got around it by trading in kind. So they'd trade different kinds, and it was a way of somebody who, was, um, who owned the debt being able to charge more. Well, then in a stunning turn of events, the master hears about what he's doing and commends him for his action that he's made friends. Now, the best translation that I think is helpful for us in this is actually the message translation from Eugene Peterson on this. Verses 8 and 9, here's what he says, and these are the words of Jesus. Streetwise people are smarter in, regard, in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for for what is right. Using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials, so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. Jesus has told us a story about how the world does business. There is a shrewdness to the world's business. I've probably told you this story before, but my dad's here and it's appropriate, I think. Um, I remember when my dad and I went to the car dealership to buy the second car that I ever owned. I was in college and we found a 1996 Nissan Maxima and I love that car. And I had that car for a while, had leather seats and a sunroof, and it was this big upgrade from the 1990 Ford Explorer I had been driving. Just was so excited about it. And the, the salesman seemed to really work up the fact that my dad is a pastor. So he really loved that, and he wanted to help us out because my dad was a pastor. Okay, And I remember, and I'll never forget what stuck with me. He said, I'm giving you guys the pastor discount. Like, I'm going to give you guys... Now, I had this atheist Democrat lady in here the other day, and I ripped her off, is what he said. And I just remember my, my heart sunk. He said, but you guys are going to get the deal. Now, the more I've reflected on that story, I think he's probably lying to us about how he was doing it because he's wanting to warm up to us culturally in this kind of sense. He's using the shrewdness of business to make, make friends, right, to gain more for himself and probably to create influence. This is how the world works. Unfortunately, we see this in Nashville a lot, that everyone's trying to get ahead. We're trying to make friends so that we can get a little higher on the influence level, right? So we can get our social media brand up. We can make the right people who can open the right doors for us.
1: Jesus is saying Christians
0: need to have a kind of shrewdness in that way but it's a completely different kind of shrewdness. We are to have a shrewdness which proclaims liberation to the captives, liberation to the debtors. We are to have a shrewdness for good. So let's look at how this worked out in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and teachers of the law have been telling people in order for them to really live into the kingdom of God, they have to do a bunch of extra things. It wasn't primarily about loving God and surrendering to his kingdom. There's a bunch of cultural stuff, extra stuff, washing your hands, ritual purity, stuff about the right people to hang out with and the wrong people to avoid. This was intended to keep spiritual debtors in debt and to create a firm line between insiders and outsiders. And here Jesus comes along and he's breaking all the rules. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's neglecting common Sabbath practices at the time because he better understood the Sabbath. He's literally liberating people and healing them and setting them free. He's cutting down their debts. And Jesus is saying to his opponents, they need to let go of the interest that they're charging people because it's driving people away. It's not causing them to make friends or be welcomed into people's home like the gospel needs to be welcomed into people's home." So he says, judgment is coming for the stewards. All along, you thought the judgment you had to worry about were all the debtors, that they were coming under judgment. But you're the one who's been managing their debt, and now you're in trouble because you've been charging all this extra interest. You're the caretakers. But like the shrewd manager, the caretakers have now come to the end of their rope. We're not the stewards we need to be. We haven't been stewarding the world or cultivating the community like we need to do. So what are we going to do now? Well, Jesus then embodies a better shrewd manager. In Israel's place, he throws caution to the wind and he loves those who have been seen as hopelessly indebted. In doing so, Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's calling. He is the steward. He is the fulfillment of humanity's calling to steward the world with radical generosity. Jesus shows us who we've always been created to be, the stewards we've been created to be. Remember elsewhere, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The call of the kingdom of God, it requires everything. It's not not easy in the sense it doesn't cost us anything. It requires full surrender, everything that we are. But it doesn't require more than that. It doesn't require all of these extra things. You're not hopelessly indebted. God only asks for surrender to his kingship. The tax collectors and the sinners were not good in and of themselves. No, not at all. But unlike the Pharisees, they knew that about themselves. They knew that they were dependent. They knew that they needed something else.
1: So Jesus is not
0: merely giving savvy business advice here. He's not saying, hey, use your money to make friends with people, and there's a nice business piece of advice for you. No. He's saying the kingdom of God is going to require you to break the, the world's rules sometimes in the sake of generosity. It's going to cause you to be shrewd. Jesus is breaking the rules. He's subverting the system. He is shrewd. He is crafty. Here's what Robert Farrar Capon writes. He says, Most important of all, the unjust steward is the Christ figure, because he is a crook, like Jesus. The unique contribution of this parable to our understanding of Jesus is its insistence that grace cannot come to the world through respectability. Respectability regards only life, success, winning. It will have no truck with the grace that works by death and losing, which is the only kind of grace there is. Jesus doesn't do things the respectable way. He breaks the Sabbath. He spent most of his time with those of ill repute He was crucified as a criminal who died next to criminals. This story is a way of describing the liberation of God and how it draws those who have been previously indebted. To clear this up a little bit, it's a parable. So he's not saying, there's not an exact correlation here, but he's saying, look at how the world does things shrewdly. You're supposed to do things shrewdly too, but it's always for the sake of goodness and liberation.
1: There's another wrinkle
0: to this. The the Pharisees believed they were protecting Israel's sacred land. They were the protectors of that. They didn't want to lose the land. God had given it to them as an inheritance. But now in Jesus, God's doing a new thing. The whole purpose of their ancestral land was, as I said at the beginning, a signpost, a microcosm of what God wanted to do for the whole world. In Christ, the borders of the kingdom of God are now advancing. The land is no longer the end all, that one piece of land. God's people are now called not only to steward one plot of land, but to steward the whole world, which was the whole point from the beginning. So this is what the commands of verses 10 through 13 refer to. The wealth of the land had become an idol to the Pharisees. So Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve or idolize your wealth and your ancestral land, trying to protect them at all costs. You can't do that and follow God as he desires to heal and restore the whole world. You can't do that. In fact, Jesus condemns mammon or money as a rival god. Notice that Jesus does that. He turns money into a name for a god. So this is the god money. His command in this reading is a direct attack on materialism, or we hope often turns you for our hope. Jesus acknowledges that the Pharisees are a slave to the land. They're a slave to money, and so often are we. And it's not that—it's funny because sometimes we think about this and we think about rich folks— And that's true a lot of times, is that they can be enslaved to land. But we often get enslaved to finding our security in money, our status in money. It can easily become an idol for us. Because so much of our life is about making money, protecting money, spending money. And we tend to size ourselves up based on how much others make or spend. Fleming Rutledge writes, what we decide to do with our money will be the strongest possible indication as to who is king in our lives. As we end here, one of the many themes in our reading that I've tried to pull out today is stewardship and care. From the beginning, the human vocation is stewardship. Care for the world in congruity with the one true God. This responsibility was later passed on to a specific people, to Israel. God's chosen people who stewarded a land and were shaped as a people set free by the one true God. Jeremiah grieves that the people have turned away from their calling as stewards. They've let it go. The prophet himself grieves for his people as God grieves. God's presence in their midst is not discernible. Now that doesn't mean God is left. God's with them, but they can't see him. They can't perceive him in their midst. It says, is the Lord not in Zion? Is healing not even available? The cry of God's people for generation after generation is, God, have you given up on us? Are you even there? We failed our calling. We're incapable. God, are you here? And as we pray, we're acknowledging our dependence. As we pray for our leaders, we're saying they can't actually fix it. We are mere stewards of the world, and our rulers are mere stewards of the world. We don't pray to them as the final authority. We pray for them to the one true God who is the final authority. We pray for our leaders, not so they'll enact a Christian agenda, but merely that they would steward the environment in such a way that the Christians can live peaceful and quiet lives of godliness and holiness. And our gospel reading reminds us Jesus is a shrewd manager, unlike the shrewd managers of our world. His aim is different. He is not out merely to save his skin, but to liberate and thereby to welcome and be welcomed into the hearts and homes of those who have been in debt. So much of religion feels like piling on extra cultural baggage. But the way of Jesus is different. It doesn't mean that it's a smooth sailing and it doesn't require any cost. No contrary to that, it requires all of us, everything that we are, But in Jesus, the extra that feels impossible has been removed. It's just our heart. All debtors are welcome. May we know Jesus, the balm in Gilead who binds our wounds today. Wherever you're hurt, wherever we're feeling hurt and wounds today, know that Jesus is the balm for that, is the healing for that. He is to be found. He is the medicine for us. May we know that he, not the political systems of our world, are in charge. So when we're tempted to think it's all about voting in the right person or you know having the right kind of activism,
1: may we know that although those
0: things may be important, he's the final authority, the one mediator between God and man, the image of the one true God himself. And in the midst of our debts, those places where we need to be forgiven, may we know that Jesus is an unjust steward. <laughs> Offering grace that breaks all the rules that we've set up. Calling us into a life of freedom. Amen.